You know, the world right now is a really unsettled place. And for such a time as this, women play a most important role in history as peacemakers. The goal of Ladies of Liberty Sound Off is to affect the lives of women in an empowering way through discussion of important issues of the day. So, are you ready? The Ladies of Liberty are ready to sound off. Welcome to Ladies of Liberty Sound Off, and today we are sounding off with Erit Tratt and Rebecca Sugar, and we'll talk a little bit about their credentials later, but I, I'm excited for this show, ladies, because you both are writers, and you both just have so much to, to bring to the table for people to understand, and you both have written articles on the, the gender ideology that's happening in schools. So I really, really want to talk about that. And I'm going to ask you first, Arit, to talk about your article, which you wrote in the American Spectator. It's a fantastic article. It, it, just, it, it just synthesizes for me everything that we need to be worried about in, in this new kind of radical teaching that our kids are being subjected to. Thanks, Linda. Yes, it, it actually was surprising when I was doing research from the article. For the article, I couldn't believe some of the material I came across. Uh, Abigail Schreier, too, uh, in her book, Irreversible Damage, provides a, a really um, you know, descriptive overview of what's going on in our country's schools. I think, uh, you know, I want to preface it by saying gender dysphoria does exist. And um, you know, I think children who experience gender dysphoria, you know, when they ex ex exhibit extreme distress associated with their biological sex, I think they needed to, they need to be treated with kindness and sensitivity. But in reality, these children, you know, it represent only 1%, uh, less than 1% of the population. And um, in 80% of the cases, gender dysphoria manifests before age seven. And what you have today are teenagers, uh, sometimes within the same friend group, within the same class, coming out as transgender. And this is in large part you know, due to what they're seeing on social media and on television, uh, which has helped popularize the movement, but it's also going on in our schools. And what's concerning, you know, and how gender ideology differs from critical race theory is that I think parents were more aware of what's going on with critical race theory there they can look at at the books and and you know listen in over zoom when the kids were home what was being taught in classes and parents have since mobilized uh, against CRT uh, and we've seen some pushback gender ideology is a little bit more difficult because uh, you know a lot of times parents I think what's most concerning is that parents are being kept in the dark about what their children are being taught at school. You know, I brought up in my article how California, some schools have these transition closets where you know, a, a girl can go to school and, and clothes her parents approve of. And then once she gets to her school, she can change secretly into boys uh, clothing. And a lot of, um, you know, and, and, and if a, a child decides, you know, Lisa decides she wants to be called Robert one day, you know, teachers in many states are obligated to, to you know, call her Robert, and they are not allowed, not permitted to let the parents know uh, what's going on. So they're, these teachers, you know, under the guise of social emotional learning, 
are encourage, encouraging kids to be you know, whatever they want to be. And, and your gender is based on your feelings. Um, and of course, this is sort of help. It's being promoted from the top down. You have Biden's secretary of educational uh, education, Miguel Cardona, who wouldn't even state if there are two genders. Um, you know, we have students in New Jersey, less than 2% you can master math in the fourth grade, yet they are being subjected to expanded gender ideology class time. Uh, the books they're reading, I Am Jazz, Jacob's New Dress, Dr. Seuss, you know, as Dr. Seuss is being pulled from the shelves, these types of books, the classics are being replaced by um, these ideological driven books. I have to tell you, Irit, that that when they started taking Dr. Seuss out of the bookstores and canceling it off of Amazon and different places, um, by the way, it's back now in force in a lot of places in the stores, but it wasn't at the time. I Before they were able to pull it off the shelves, I bought every Dr. Seuss, I bought three sets of every book. I, I had every single book when I raised my kids and I loved them. And I, I, I think that they're cute and they're fun and the kids loved them. So in my closet, in my house, I still have two sets. I've given one to uh, my one-year-old grandson and I have another grandbaby on the way and I'm saving the other one for that one and the other one for whoever comes down the road as far as grandchildren. So I want them to have the, the same uh, enjoyment that I had with those books. And I, I wanted to just sort of, um, there's so many things to say about this issue. And Irid brought up so many lanes that we could go down. It's sort of, you know, it's sort of dizzying trying to figure out what to talk about first here. Because I think there's so many things that are wrong uh, with what's happening and with um, all of the issues that Irid just sort of sorted through. Um, one of the top line ones for me is this, the very sort of foundational idea that our schools somehow understand themselves to be um, in a position of authority to have these conversations in the first place with our children, that they assume that they are the venue in which conversations about gender identity should be taking place, right? There's, there's this sort of unspoken assumption that this is the place to have this conversation with your children. And people sort of take it for granted that it's going to take place there. And then the question is the parameters of it. And I sort of step back and say, why do these people think they should be talking about this at all? Um, what, what would qualify teachers in the classroom, a, a second grade science teacher, a, a, an eighth grade history teacher, are they even qualified to have such conversations? Why, why is this the forum that um, people assume this should be taking place and is sort of a big question that probably should have been asked before we even started negotiating the details? And um, I think it sort of bleeds into this other issue of uh, what teachers, the role that teachers are now playing in the lives of children across America, what the assumptions are about those roles and um, the authority that we place in them that I think is often misplaced um, and the responsibilities that are placed on them that shouldn't be placed on them. And, and I want to say that I think there are probably a lot of teachers who sort of seem to, anyway, it seems that they are enjoying this new position and this, these new responsibilities they've been given because they see themselves as activists uh, in that sort of socio-political sense. But I, I'm, I'm convinced that there are just as many teachers who really would rather not have this burden on them because they know they're not qualified to be having these conversations. 
And um, I, I'd love to hear more from those people and hear the pushback more from them to say, you know, my job is to care for your child during the day and teach them the subject I've been taught to teach them. But um, this is a whole other set of responsibilities that I didn't sign up for. And I, I imagine there are plenty of teachers who feel that way too. And ultimately, I think what, what all of this does, that kind of setup between a teacher and a student, I think sets all kids up for a really negative experience of learning and of being a student and of their relationship with their teachers that I think grows more and more toxic every year they get older and they recognize that they're being manipulated and indoctrinated. My sense is we're breeding a whole generation of cynical kids who look at their teachers as you know, people trying to get them to think something or believe something. And it may feel like a win early on when you get young kids to kind of nod along, but middle schoolers and teenagers have a way of rolling their eyes in the back of the classroom. And I'm not even sure that the desired effect is being reached, but I think we might be getting some unintended consequences around kids who just um, are, become cynical human beings as a result of this, because this is a really cynical process. You know, you, you mentioned the teachers, uh, Rebecca, you mentioned, uh, you know, that you'd like to see pushback and I would like to see a lot of pushback. I, I just think teacher, teachers should refuse to teach this stuff. And I couldn't agree more about what right do they have to force this down our children's throats and parents' throats as well. And say that they that they have the right to do this. No, I don't think that they have the right to do this at all. This is not part of what curriculum in school should be at all. But you mentioned, again, the teachers. And I, I just was reading that thousands and thousands of teachers are not returning in the fall this year, that what they are saying is, if they can take retirement, they're taking their retirement, but the ones that can't that are leaving anyway are saying that the kids are so far behind from being out of school. They are uh, depressed. They are frustrated. They are not at their grade levels. They're not performing well. Um, there's a lack of concentration. And there, there are so many issues that the teachers don't feel that they can help. They, they themselves are getting frustrated and uh, depressed themselves because they can't help. And then on top of that, they have to be teaching critical race and, uh, you know, radical gender ideology. It, they, they want to teach the kids what they should be teaching, you know, reading, writing, arithmetic. There are so many kids that are not even at reading level that they should be at in their class, that it's, it's just, it's terrible. And we are raising a generation here of kids that, that are going to be the leaders in our country, you know, in the future, we, we have got to be paying attention to this. So now we have kind of a double whammy where we've got lots of teachers leaving. We've got these kids coming off being homeschooled for two years and they come back and they're learning all of this stuff, which is just going to confuse them. This is not something kids want to hear about or understand at their age. This, the, as you, as Arit said, there's about 1% of kids that are even in this category. Why are the 99% being forced to 
uh, I don't know, comply to, to go along with this, that this is not their thing. They just need to be in school to learn the things that they need to learn to have an effective and successful and, you know, a happy life that that's what they need to do. They need to understand how to do simple things, balance your checkbook, um, you know, read a book, read a contract, do just do the very basic things that you need to do in life. And that's all we're asking them. And we can't seem to even get that done. Well, Linda and Rebecca, you bring up an important point about teachers' roles in the classroom. And right after I wrote the piece and posted it on Facebook, I I received pushback from an educator uh, in in Pennsylvania, and she she basically said, you know, teachers' roles are, you know, it's it's not only within academics that you know it's their role to help students manage and navigate, you know, their emotions. And she really took issue with with the fact that I I said, you know, educators have to stop trying to therapize our students and start you know, focusing on reading and writing um, and arithmetic. Like you said, Linda, they're, they're way behind uh, following COVID. You also raised a point how we have, you know, a large uh, group of teachers retiring. And I worry, you know, with the more seasoned teachers leaving, we have this new group of, of younger, probably more left-leaning teachers uh, coming in. I think I saw a, a recent study that that showed only, you know, 27% of teachers are conservative, which in all honesty, that was higher than I expected. Um, but maybe that's just because, you know, I'm in New York and, you know, I rarely come across a conservative teacher, particularly in the humanities departments. Um, but I think that figure stands at around 27%. But I wonder down the road where, where that will be. And I also find it interesting that there hasn't been a lot of attention paid there's been attention paid to, to the to you know how uh, this gender affirming affirming agenda affects uh, sports and and um, women's sports, but less attention has been paid to you know what about these young girls, you know at these schools where gender ideology is being pushed, you know a boy can decide he he can you know to, to he feels like a girl one day, he's allowed by law to use a girl's restroom. Uh, and I wonder, you know, how does that make you know, young girls feel when they have to share a bathroom with the boys? The, you know, none of these issues, I feel, have been thought through in any meaningful way. Right. And also, I, I think that's right. I'm sort of curious to read also after if you'll tell us like how you responded to that teacher who pushed back against you. Um, but I, I think there's also um, something to say about the emphasis, right? It's, it's the emphasis of this conversation is on gender identity. It's on how you present to others. You know, that it starts with this idea that you might feel different or feel excluded, but the emphasis we seem to be placing in our interventions is how you present to other people and how other people treat you, all these externalities. And there's very little conversation um, with, children and adults about um, maybe not everything you feel needs to be navigated by others. Maybe you do feel different and that's something to navigate for yourself and it doesn't have to become classroom conversation. Maybe every issue that you have growing up and there'll be many, including gender confusion or, or question, 
Um, doesn't have to be played out in a public setting. I, there, something about this also feels, um, I'm sure that this is not gonna be popular with some people, but I, I wonder what happened to sort of privacy and just, if you do have an issue, not every issue is everyone else's issue. Not every issue needs to be worked out amongst your community. Some things can be worked out privately. I mean, there's, there's such a, a crossing of lines um, between private and public now, it's hard to tell that if there's a difference anymore. And I think something's being lost in that. Um, and I would say that, you know, there, there might be some kids, I don't even think it is 1%. I thought it was sort of 0.0 something percent, but I have to go back and look it up. People actually have like real transgender kind of, um, uh, the, the tendency towards transgenderism. Um, but I, I this assumption that kids are confused about their gender, I think is an assumption that I've not seen played out in any data or sociological studies. There are a lot of things about this subject that we just say over and over. I can't find any evidence that they're true. Another girlfriend of mine was sort of talking to me about her 14-year-old boy who she said, you know, wear skirts now, he goes to Trinity and, and the whole shebang. And, and she was saying um, that her pediatrician had advised her that, you know, studies indicate that if you don't take a child like that for gender reassignment surgery before puberty, you risk that child going through puberty and then becoming suicidal. And I said to her, that just, I don't know, but that sounds not true. Have you read things about it? Have you, well, her pediatrician told her, so she believed it. And I went digging online and, and I found that there was one study that people were basing that assumption off of, which has been thoroughly debunked. Right. So I just think there's so much language around this conversation, assumptions around it, that then became part of the public conversation and then became policy. And we're working it all out in public. And some of it's just faulty science. Some of it's not true. Some of it's exaggerated. Some of it is true. Um, and on top of that, I think I'm saying I'm not even sure why if there were one child in, in a school who really were transgender, why that would be a consideration for the curriculum of an entire school. How did we move from someone has an individual issue to everyone has to make this part of their daily conversation? Don't miss an episode of the Ladies of Liberty Sound Off. Subscribe to the podcast. And for the latest news and inspiration, join us back at AmericaOutloud.com. While many things we hear are lies, we know one thing is true. Viruses exist and people get sick. Look, there's no guaranteed way to keep from getting sick, but there is a way to reduce your chances. Cofix RX, the original povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray that you hear Dr. McCullough talking about, provides an additional invisible layer of protection from colds, flu, coronaviruses, and more. Click the banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and use promo code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Stay protected with Cofix RX. How the spirit of American liberty and justice is woven into the soul of America Out Loud. Now we invite you, friends, to invest some of your time with our magnificent family of experts, their minds and voices. It's all back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years. Brush, floss, repeat. 
We're told to use fluoride, which doesn't really address the acid-creating bacteria. That is where the dentist-recommended Spry Dental Defense System shines. Spry products contain xylitol, a natural sugar, which helps get rid of those nasty, smelly, acid-creating bacteria in our mouth. The best way to care for your teeth and gums is by using Spry. The Spry Dental Defense System has a wide variety of products, toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and chewing gums that are designed to work together to keep your teeth clean and mouth healthy and smelling sweet all day long. To get your oral care back on track in an easy, effective, and very tasty way, switch to Spry today. Ask your dentist about Xylitol and the Spry products. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural product retailers. Welcome back to Ladies of Liberty Sound Off. And I'd like to introduce our host today. Today we have Rebecca Sugar. She is a mom of two and she is a columnist that uh, writes for the New York Sun. She is a wife and hails from New York. Also from New York, we have Arit Tratt, who uh, is a freelance writer. She works with the American Spectator. And she also has worked on the Hill for several members of Congress handling foreign affairs. She has three kids, is a, a wife, and obviously a mom, also, as I said, from New York. And I'm Linda Martinelli. I am a business owner and live in Texas, and also the host of Talking Well Married right here on America Out Loud weeknights at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, along with my husband, Dr. Ron Martinelli, a forensic criminologist. So catch us at Talking Well Married uh, every weeknight. Rebecca, you were talking about uh, what happens with these kids and why we are really uh, making all of the other kids, it's like I said before, 99% who don't have these issues are having to adjust their lives and their education for the 1% who do. So I want to uh, hear you keep going on that and you know, finish what you were talking about there. Yeah, I guess I was just sort of having this sort of talking out loud to myself, mostly just wondering why our societies come to this place where um, accommodation for everything is expected, where accommodation of the very tiny minority imposes itself on the majority of, and in some cases, maybe these things are, you know, doable and appropriate, but it feels like our reflex is, you know, reflexively, we uh, we take um, fringe cases and um, impose them on everyone else and make them the norm. I think also we have a tendency to take ideas and turn them into um, doctrine, you know, sort of do- like established orthodoxy, right? And many of the ideas we're talking about here with gender ideology in particular are not established science. There's a lot of discussion and debate, not much known about a lot of these topics, um, certainly not enough to be teaching them as part of curriculum. And then on layer on top of that, we have um, you know, teachers who are not experts in these subjects. So the, the entire kind of conversation just strikes me as um, it's a cultural moment where we frame everything this way. But if you sort of pick it apart uh, on, in, in all of its layers, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of justification for it. Um, and I think that um, teachers, as we were saying before, have an opportunity here to push back 
and to assert themselves, the ones who want to. Um, and I think we have an opportunity to sort of talk about, as Arit said, you know, the younger teachers coming into the space, I think with the ideas in their heads that it is their job and their mission to be activists more than teachers, to take care of my child's emotional needs more than their reading needs. Um, I don't know that those things are mutually exclusive, but the weight of, of it all seems to be heavily shifted in one direction. And then I think we have an opportunity now to think about what is education for our kids? You know, I think some of us have one view of it and others have another. And some of the assumptions that we've been making just split us apart even further. Um, you know, it may be that we have to create new forms of education for our children because the ones that are sort of popular are out there are not serving our kids well. But these sort of fundamental and foundational questions about what a teacher is there to do, what a school is there to do, what um, subjects we should be talking about in the classroom, who should be talking about them, all of that seems to have just been erased. And it's whatever the ideology of the day is, get it in there and teach it to the kids, even if you teach it badly. And just lastly, and then I'm gonna stop rambling, is just to say, even if I were the parent of a child who had, uh, who, was, who were one of the small percentage of children who have transgender, I don't, I'm not sure I'm using the right language, but who were transgender, um, I, I can't imagine that my go-to would be their second grade social studies teacher, right? Why, if I, my child had a very real medical, emotional, spiritual issue in life, I would take them to the appropriate experts. I wouldn't take them to my second grade math teacher. So th this whole setup seems to me really disingenuous and not even helpful to the kids who might actually need it. No, and how, how dare they assume that they have more of a right than you as a parent to handle this issue with your child and that, that they would know better how to handle it. I th no, this is, this is just absolutely wrong. I would not have my children ch child in any school that uh, taught this to kids. That's, that's just parents need to stand up just as they did in Fairfax school in Virginia, just uh, recently where they went to a school board meeting and they complained about it. They're, they're talking that, you know, that the kids are falling behind. They only have 33% of eighth graders and 38% of fourth graders that are proficient in reading. And yet they want to teach all of this. And the parents are saying, no, you need to teach math, science, language, arts, writing. You need, you need to teach the things that you're there to teach and not all of this. And what, what did Fairfax County public schools do? They said, well, we'll, we'll just table this. They, they, you know, they, they kind of were caught red handed at this, at the school meeting that they were going to be teaching uh, this radical agenda. And the parents came in and said, no, and that's what parents need to do. I, you know, there are two, I think, very important layers to this issue. The first is, is teachers, you know, the teacher's role in the classroom. <clears throat> And the second, I think, uh, a serious one is that parents being kept in the dark about what's going on in their in their children's classrooms. Um, with teachers, I mean, I, Abigail Schreier point, points out in her book that the Los Angeles Unified School District, which is the second largest school district in the country, uh, the the district's program coordinator for human relations uh, basically said that educational institutions are no longer focused exclusively on reading, writing, and arithmetic. So teachers, I, I believe many of them 
view their roles as, as therapists as well in the classroom. And just going back to my, uh, my exchange with, with a friend, you know, on social media, which is never a good idea, I find, but when she, you know, pushed back against my piece, I, you know, I responded in kind. I just said, look, I'm not, you know, I, I think we have a responsibility to treat everyone, you know, with kindness and with sensitivity. That's, it's not the issue. It's that, it's that this is not the teacher's role in, in the classroom. And particularly since children are now behind, American children are behind in all of the core subjects. And she, you know, she, she just doesn't uh, believe in that. She believes that her role is, um, is to be there for children in, in sort of like a, a therapist capacity. And she also prefaced it by saying she's a parent of a girl who is in the process of discovering herself, whatever that means. So um, I think she's coming from it uh, in, in that angle as well. Um, but I, but I, I am concerned that, you know, teachers like my friend and, and, and millions of others, you know, aren't letting parents know when, when a student wants to come in and, and be referred to by a different name or pronoun. Uh, that's, that's a real concern. And many parents in the age of cancel culture are nervous to speak out for fear of being labeled as homophobic or transphobic. Uh, so I'm, I'm nervous that unlike CRT, parents are more inclined to go along with, with this gender affirming agenda and ideology that's being taught in the classroom. You saw, uh, I think I read this, this one father in, in San Francisco was, uh, you know, divorced from his wife and his son was undergoing, um, while at his mother's house, you know, the son was living as a girl. And when he questioned, uh, you know, this gender ideology being taught in school and the, and the teacher pushing this agenda and letting him dress as a, as a girl, uh, he was labeled as transphobic and was questioned by a Bay Area judge, you know, who asked him if he thought transgender was a sin. And, you know, he lost custody of, of his 15 year old. So this is this is a real concern for parents. To that exact point, Yurid, I just think that this is the underlying ideology that animates all of it. I hardly think it's about gender sometimes or or race or any of these other issues. It's, a, it's straight out of a Marxist playbook to sort of separate parents from their children and to separate parental authority from children and, and children from their, their parents. And when, when you look at these issues, you notice, right, that is the, the ultimate sort of goal is to establish some other authority, the state, the school, but not the parent. And it's sort of been creeping in and now it's being done in this overt way. And I, I think parents have to sort of recognize that that all of these sort of designations, race and, and gender and, and so forth are, are being used sort of to create a higher, toward a higher purpose. And, and, you know, it's not, I don't think that's front lobe for the average, you know, third grade teacher engaging in this. I think they're just sort of useful in the classroom to, toward that end. But I think the, the people pushing this ideology from the top um, are, are, they're not doing anything new. This has been done before. Um, this idea of separating parents and their authority from their children, which then causes children to turn to the state 
as their um, as their form of authority. Well, you're absolutely right there, Rebecca. It's done in every communist country. Right. So, right. so, so that's what the, that you're you're exactly right as to the purpose of this that that it is uh, to foster a Marxist ideology. This is this is one of the the keys is to separate the the kids from their family and to have the state be in charge. That that's exactly what they're doing. That it boggles my mind. Um, perhaps I'm naive that we have gone this far in this country without stopping this process. And I think um, the way to stop it, I think that we have to talk about that. I think that we, that we as conservatives or as parents that disagree with this philosophy and want to uh, retain control over our own children and decide what they learn and what they don't learn, I, I think that we have to step up and we have to develop schools that... Um, foster the beliefs and the values that we have as um, conservatives, as people of um, religious beliefs that, you know, schools that perhaps put God back in school would be good. Uh, Schools that teach the, the, and teach very well, the, the subjects that we need to learn. I know I went to Catholic school. I had a great education uh, we had 60 kids in a class there and they were all very well behaved. And if there was anybody that was out of line, they were taken care of right away. And I don't mean, you know, abuse. I, I mean, you know, the nuns used to certainly slap our hands with rulers. That was no big deal, but they, they were, they were appropriately remediated, um, you know, sitting, sitting off to the side. There's a lot to say about peer pressure in school. Uh, and I think that, what is happening is is going to be hurting our kids, especially as Arit mentioned this, the secrecy that that they can give these gender uh, changing drugs or gender suppressing drugs to our children without parents even knowing. I I just can't even imagine how we've allowed this to go this far and, and why kids are even still in these schools. It's expensive to start a school and we have an additional problem that the Biden administration has put additional financial and, and I guess uh, different kinds of regulations on our charter schools, new regulations that make it much harder for charter schools to operate. And that there's a purpose to that because they want them to go to the state schools and they want them to uh, have the indoctrination. And if they're in charter schools where they're not indoctrinated, then that doesn't serve their purpose. So, so they have put up roadblocks. The charter schools can still operate, but it makes it much harder for them to sort of pass the, the hurdles that the administration has put upon them to be able to operate. And, that, and that's a problem for all of us. But I think that, that people of values need to be starting schools and uh, whether they're small schools, perhaps they're neighborhood home schools. I, I don't know all of the solutions, but I think that something has to be done because we, we can't afford to let this generation of children be indoctrinated in this way. It's, it's, just, it's just not right. It, it is a way to separate them from the family and that's what will happen. Well, not only are, you know, is the administration putting up more roadblocks, for charter schools, 
but they also, uh, you know, are, are helping the federal government uh, is assisting those schools who promote this gender affirming agenda and that a lot of the COVID relief dollars that were, were designed, you know, to, to aid in COVID relief were being redirected to buy social and emotional learning programs and fund SEL teachers. Uh, Do you think so, that that was a plan? Do you think that that was a plan out front when they gave that money because they gave them the right to use it for other things other than what it suppo- was supposed to be used for? It could, it could have been. I would not be surprised. It would not shock me. And look, I, I also think uh, we, we, we erase the issue of teachers too. A lot of children, a lot of students, I, I think feel compelled to come out, you know, saying they, they're transgender to ingratiate themselves with, with some of these teachers. Um, I know, you know, a, a young girl who, who, you know, decided she was non-binary and she received praise from her science teacher as being courageous for coming out um, in, in that way. This is, that's all very concerning as well. Yeah, and think about the, the, the irony of it. These teachers think they're helping social and emotional learning. And yet they're praising a kid for talking about something that's not really social or emotional. It's, it's just, it's, um, I don't know what the right word is, but it's about, you know, gender and sex. And, and um, I, you know, I, I'd be much more interested to praise a child for issues having to do with their character and their, you know, development. What does that have to do? Let's say a kid is non-binary, if they can know what that is at the age of 12, which I doubt, but let's say they feel that way. Why would that be a thing to note one way or the other is sort of my question always. Why is this even something that is being discussed? Is that, is that um, praiseworthy behavior? Is that, what is that? It's, it's saying I'm attra- I'm, I identify as this or I'm attracted to that. I, why would that be of note? So it's not to me social or emotional anyway. It, it, you know, if a teacher feels that they're a social worker, why would that be an issue to be working on? I'd rather work on a person's, you know, character development, which I also don't want my teachers too, too deeply going into without my permission. But I don't know. I find the whole, the language around this is so deliberately confusing and obfuscates what, what the real agenda is. This isn't about your child's social or emotional development. It's just not what it's about. Not only is the language confusing, I also find it a little creepy that these teachers think it's it's okay to to discuss you know sexual um sexual matters with, with the students that's also concerning um i don't know you know how or when you know this became okay or acceptable behavior it certainly wasn't this way when i was younger sure read like i'm laughing because you and i are writers and you use the word creepy and i'm thinking it's probably not a word either one of us would want to use in an article but it's the perfect <laughs> word it really is i love that word it explains <laughs> it perfectly and Perfectly, we'll be right back. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. 
delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day. Yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. Well, Arit and Rebecca, you both took trips recently, and those trips are so interesting to me. I want to hear about them. Arit, you went to Israel. Yes, I did. It was a fascinating trip. I learned a great deal, and, and you know, I was there for six days, and each day was devoted to a different sort of sector of, of Israel. Uh, one day was the you know, was about the ultra-Orthodox community within Israel. One day we learned more about the high-tech sector, which is an enormous industry within Israel. Uh, another day we went down south and visited the Bedouin community, which is going to, you know, it's a hot topic now in Israel as well. And what I found interesting was, was a lot of the challenges and opportunities that American Jews, you know, that we, we raise when we talk about Israel are not necessarily topics that, you know, that, that are affecting them as much. Um, Iran, for instance, I think American Jews are really concerned about the Iran deal and we debate, you know, the merits of the deal. I think, you know, most of us believe it's a bad deal where in Israel, everyone is united uh, against the deal, you know, right, left, center, Nobody wants the United States to to re, to rejoin uh, the JCPOA. Uh, you know, another issue that American Jews raise quite a bit is is the egalitarian prayer, in the Western Wall. Uh, you know, men and women have always been separated, and um, many uh, American Jews would like to see you know more of a common area established uh, on the main concourse by the Western Wall. Uh, You know, Israelis are not concerned about that issue. They are really focused on over-regulation and government bureaucracy uh, within Israel. Uh, They're also very concerned. There's been a bubbling up of Arab violence within, um, within Israel's borders. And that's a huge, huge focus right now. Um, You know, with the over-regulation, Israel has absorbed thousands of new immigrants over the last few years, and especially now from Ukraine. And for instance, if a, if a doctor from France wants to come work in Israel, he or she needs to, you know, re reestablish their medical license, and it could take years. So they're trying to find ways around that. The government. Um, another example, for instance, the tech industry accounts for over fifty percent of all exports in Israel. So if you have a, a bright you know, man or woman who, with a laptop who wants to start you know, a new business, it's very easy to do in Israel. 
Yet uh, a young man or woman who wants to open a falafel stand in the middle of the city is subjected to a lot of government oversight and regulation. So this is also something that they need to uh, bridge the gap on. Uh, now, in terms of the Arab sector, there's been a, you know, an increase in, in some violence uh, in, in Israel within Arab communities. And uh, you know, when we toured the Bedouin areas, they, the issue is that you have a lot of Bedouins who are you know, generally a very peaceful community. They've been living down there for, for decades. Uh, but now you know, they've taken, uh, after they've taken one, two, three, four wives, they end up marrying a lot of the times Palestinians they bring in from Gaza. So now Israel has an issue where you have a hostile population living within its borders. So Israel needs to find a way to address this. Um, and, uh, you know, the government, again, it's, this is, the government is very fragile. In Israel, a government, you know, if they're in the majority, they have 61 out of 120 Knesset seats. Well, the current government only has 60 seats. And many uh, of the political pundits we spoke to in Israel believe that the government uh, has anywhere, you know, from one to six months uh, to, to see before it falls. They really need to get the budget passed uh, in a couple months. And, and, you know, if that doesn't happen, then it could spur new elections in Israel. And it would, you know, they've been through numerous elections over the past five years. This also makes, you know, it tougher to get meaningful legislation passed. Why do they have so many elections? Uh, is the person not elected for a certain amount of time? So the person, no, they're not elected for a certain amount of time. They, the party that receives their most votes, that leader is tasked with then forming a coalition. And if they can't, they need to cobble together a coalition using different parties. So people, Bibi Netanyahu became such sort of a hated figure by many within Israel, within Israel. As wonderful as Bibi was, I don't think he was as successful in building up institutions or people beneath him. So this government sort of like an anti-Bibi government. I mean, Bennett is prime minister. Bennett only received seven mandates, seven seats. So you have a prime minister, the leader of Israel, who really didn't receive a majority of, of the votes in Israel, whose party did not receive the majority of the votes. And this, the current coalition Israel is a cobbling together of, you know, Bennett's party, it's a small right-wing party. You have the Arab party, the Ram party, which is the first time in Israel's history that uh, an Arab party has served in, in the coalition, which is pretty remarkable. And then you have a lot of left-wing groups within the coalition too. So it's very, very hard to get things, you know, accomplished now. It's fascinating, the government there, how, you know, we think our system is confusing. Israel's is, is far more complicated. I, I just have one question, and then I want to hear about Rebecca's trip to Poland, which is also fascinating to me. So did you sense any, well, I don't know if you were over there before, say under Trump, but, but what is the feeling right now uh, from Israel about America and our administration and what's happening in our country? Just real quickly. I think they, they, well, they love Trump. I think Israelis gave Trump, you know, 83% of Israelis at, at least, I think approved of Trump. I mean, he was so pro-Israel. Uh, with Biden, the focus ha has really been on 
Iran. They're really, really concerned that he that he's going to rejoin the deal. Although now I guess he he did say the IRGC, um, Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, was going to remain on the terrorist list, uh, you know, as part of the deal. Um, but it's interesting this t- this time around, the focus was really on Israel's internal issues and the challenges facing Israel internally. Um, I think, you know, would they prefer Trump over Biden? Probably, but I, you know, I, it's, it wasn't a focus of this trip as much. Okay. Um, and Rebecca, you went to Poland right next door to Ukraine. And I want to hear about that trip because that, that's just fascinating. Another fascinating place to go. Yeah. I also went for four or five days with a group, um, it's my second trip to Poland, although I'd been probably 15 years earlier. Um, and that trip, I was sort of leading a group of, of young people to do a Jewish heritage tour and to visit some of the concentration camps there. And so this time I was a participant, which actually helped me to sort of sit back and just listen and learn more. Um, and of course, you have the war, uh, Russia, Ukrainian war happening. So Poland has taken in a considerable number of Ukrainian refugees. And so we met uh, several of them, adults and children, um, you know, the concentration camps. And we basically went to Krakow and to Warsaw and Lublin. Um, we, of course, saw Auschwitz. It was my second time at Auschwitz. It's the second time that you sort of stand there. They have a tower that you kind of, observation tower that you climb up and you see the scale of this um, place. <laughs> it was a complex, people don't actually know, but there were different parts to it. Um, Auschwitz-Birkenau or Auschwitz II is where the majority of the Jews were killed, but there was Auschwitz I where other prisoners of war were killed. And then there were, you know, there was a rubber plant on, on, on this huge site. I mean, it was massive. You stand on this platform and you look and you just see how big it was. It's, it's sort of, it's still unbelievable even when you're standing there. Um, Maidanek, which is the um, concentration and death camp that was just outside the city center of Lublin, is, um, I think, even more jarring because it's pretty much all intact. Auschwitz, the crematoria had been bombed and things that here you literally are walking into the gas chamber and seeing the scratch marks on the walls. You are going into the crematoria, the ovens where the bodies were burned. And I mean, it looks like it might have been operational yesterday. Uh, so it's very, um, it's very dark and it's literally on the outskirts of this town. So really hard to argue that people didn't know what was happening there. And what's maybe even worse, uh, is when you walk out of the building where the crematoria are in Maidanek, literally you look across a field and not very far away, it's just a chain link fence and then a row of homes that have clearly been built since World War II is over. Um, and with windows that just face directly onto this site, the, the monument that was built there with a pile of human ash, the crematoria building. And you just try to imagine everyday Poles living in these places built in that location with that view, waking up in the morning, having their coffee and looking at this. Um, it, it just raised a lot of questions for me about people's um, capacity to, to I don't know, live in the shadow of evil every day. And I guess somehow disconnect from it. I I can't imagine it. I can't imagine living next door to a cemetery to use Irid's terminology would creep me out. 
And this is way worse than a cemetery. This was a killing field and people live there uh, and have their windows, you know, facing it. I, I, I find it fascinating, but um, the, the refugee situation was actually really very interesting because it was not what I thought. I think when we think of refugees, we have images in our heads, all of us. And, you know, there was a woman I met who, had, you know, came across the border with her five-year-old, took her several days, it was not an easy journey. Her husband is still in the Ukraine. She's been separated from her family. She's in a new country. She had to find a place to stay and work and, and just traumatized. And, you know, she was a refined, intelligent, serious person who broke into tears every few minutes because she's just traumatized by her life. Um, and the 12 year old, if you hadn't told me that he was a refugee from the war, whose father is in the war now fighting, I wouldn't have believed you. He was bright eyed and bushy tailed and talking about how he wanted to grow up and become a heart transplant surgeon and adorable as can be and full of life and energy. Um, you know, the word refugee sort of conjures up certain images and what they are people who've, who have different reactions to the same set of circumstances and, and who um, have different levels of resilience and fight and sadness and, and everything. Um, so we met really different people with different um, sort of perspectives on this and, and ways of coping. Uh, but what I found really particularly sad is that almost to the last one, everybody we met sort of said, looked at us and said, and when we go back home, when I return to my town or my, and you know, of the 5 million refugees who are reported to have fled from the Ukraine, a million have returned back, uh, but mostly to these sort of safer parts in the Western part of the country. Um, many of the people we met, it's, it's hard to imagine they're ever going home, whatever home means to them now. Uh, they come from the East where a lot of their homes have been destroyed. Uh, it's not clear to me that Ukraine will, in quotes, win this war. It's not clear what will happen, but it, it just struck me as particularly sad that they just said it. Um, they said it as though it were an established fact that they were going to return home when this thing ends. And I sort of cried for them because I'm not sure that they will. Um, some of them have sort of found places in Poland and are building these lives that that they think are temporary, may end up being less temporary. Um, and, and there's Jewish life in Poland still, uh, in Warsaw and less than Krakow. We visited a Jewish school in Warsaw. And of course, some of the kids uh, in the kindergarten were, you know, Ukrainian refugees, but there, there is a community there. There's a Jewish community center we visited. Um, again, complicated sort of reaction, right? This idea that, you know, uh, there were three and a half million Jews uh, in Poland, uh, killed in Poland during the war, you know, most of the communities were just wiped out and to see these fledgling communities resume, there was a woman we met with who actually was a survivor and, and then stayed in Poland the entire time and lived there and will never leave, she said. Um, on the one hand, you sort of think it's defiance. And on the other hand, it's just sort of sad to think of trying to build up another Jewish life here uh, for what? Um, so it, it is a mixture of emotions and feelings and a good perspective on what it means to have a free country and to be as a minority, to be free in your country and to all of the things that we talk about in this show and that you, Linda, talk about in your show having to do with America. 
they all sort of bleed into one essential issue, which is um, if you want to live a free life in a free country, you have to you have to fight for it and you have to fight the creeping sort of assault on your freedoms as they come, or you end up, you know, as so many other places have losing that fight, you know, for different reasons, it's no, that I'm not comparing the two. I, I don't want to suggest, but, but there are some similarities in terms of, you know, just fighting for freedom. Once you see with your own eyes, what it looks like not to have it or not to have had it, uh, it matters even more. Rebecca, that was so powerful. Uh, you know, what you just shared with us, uh, particularly about the, the, you know, the gas chamber, you know, right on the outskirts of, of the city, one has to wonder, you know, how people just, just went on with their lives as this was going on, literally right in their backyard. And it, it really is, you know, provides such a, uh, an important reason why, why we need Israel as well, right? Um, and, and that's why on many of these trips, Students go to Poland first, and and they you know get they they see these concentration camps, and then they land in in the only Jewish homeland in the world, and it's a very powerful reminder of you know why it's important to support Israel as well. Yeah, and and we have to be careful that we don't let these things happen here. We look at Seattle and Portland, who made their own areas uh, where police couldn't go in, and you know we just have to make sure. That, that we're not looking out our windows here at things happening in all of the cities around the country and, and becoming uh, sort of numb to it and just letting it happen. We, we, we've got to stay involved and take action and make sure that we vote. Well, ladies, that's a wrap. One more step for womankind. <laughs>